Hi, this is Ben Zorns of Ellerslie Mission Society. The Apostle Paul makes an incredibly audacious statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He beseeches the body of Christ to all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among them, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Is he crazy? Is it even possible? Well, this message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Ellerslie Experiment, and it is our attempt to stand up and say, it can be done. Please contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. At Ellerslie, we have every conceivable conservative denominational bias in our midst. And I want you to realize... Most conservative Christians would say that is utterly impossible. You cannot do that. Conservatism by its very nature demands division. Because we dot I's and cross T's and we know precisely what we believe. Which, what does that mean? Well, when someone crosses the wrong T and dots the wrong I, hmm, we notice. And we say, sorry brother, but I can't have fellowship with you. You see... Christianity involves a separation from this world, a protection from all that is false, all that is antagonistic towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet there seems to be this idea in Scripture which calls us to come together and to be of one mind. How in the world are we supposed to pull that off? And God, of course, his great response is, why do you think it's up to you? You become my vessel and let me do it in and through you. See, when we try and strategize how to bring the church of Jesus Christ together, the conservative side, the Bible-believing side, the Christ-glorifying side of the church, and I make no bones about it, those that do not hold to the Word of God are not bringing glory to Jesus Christ. And so I will separate right along those lines and say that is not the church of Jesus Christ. If you do not build upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ, you are not the church of Jesus Christ. You are not the extension of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is the foundation stone. However, then you get the conservatives together and we begin to dicker about where we emphasize and what we look at and what we point at and what our discussions are about and what we preach on and then what we emphasize in our living and in our marriages and in our families. When we're going to teach our kids, what are we teaching them? We know it's the Word of God, but what, where do we start in the Word of God? It's 66 big, long books. Have you ever measured how many pages and how many words are in that book? Where do you start? Okay, if you're going on a journey into a forest, you take along a compass because you need to know what north is. You need a fixed reference point. And so most of us as conservatives would say, well, we have a fixed reference point. It's the Word of God. Where in the Word of God is the definition of the fixed reference point within the Word of God? Isn't that an interesting question? How do you rightly handle the Word, which means you need to know where the fixed reference point is in the Word of God to reason from? So we have all these conservative denominations, all with their little biases. Well, I I think we should start over here. Well, we have always started over here. Well... And then we end up at this message where Eric has to get up in front of you and actually make his opinion known on the matter. Trembling, yes. The Ellerslie Experiment is what I call this. Not a very exciting title, uh, but intriguing, don't you uh, think? The Ellerslie Experiment. To go into this Ellerslie Experiment, what I want to do is I want to dig into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 
is a pastor's nightmare book. First uh, Corinthians causes more problems for pastors than maybe any other book in the Bible. Okay, now that's an arguable one. If there was other pastors in here, they'd say, well, you know, don't forget, you know, and they would bring up their other things. But First Corinthians is a challenging one. I mean, we have uh, head coverings over here, and then we have tongues a little later. Usually in the conservative side, someone goes, head coverings, and then the other one goes, tongues. Very rarely do they unite. Okay, you follow me? It's all in one book. Okay, now look at the very beginning of this book. Something is amiss in Corinth. You know why Paul even wrote this letter to the Corinthian church? is because something was off kilter. I'm going to read you about that. This is the entry to the book of Corinthians. And you're going to see that Paul is responding. So all of these other things that he's having to deal with, clean house and say, okay, guys, this is ridiculous. Why are you doing that? Okay, now we need to clean this room too. All stems from a problem at the root. Let's get to the root. First Corinthians, you'll see this collection of verses. It goes all the way through 2.8. Okay? Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. I want you to realize how preposterous that is. I'm not going to stop here because I'll come back to it. But I want you to realize how preposterous that is. Paul, you've obviously not been in the conservative church long. Uh, to all speak the same thing. Yeah, right. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. This is Paul's reasoning for why he has to address the Corinthian church. There are contentions among you. You are not of the same mind. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Okay, does this relate to us at all? I am of Calvin. I am of Luther. I am of Wesley. I am of Joseph Arminius. And I am of Christ. Of course, then you feel more spiritual when you say that one. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now, I'm going to come back to all this. You might as well listen closely. Just because there's nothing boldened in this does not mean you glaze over. Okay? But the cross of Christ, for the preaching of the cross, is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised has God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring not things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glories... Let him glory in the Lord. Now that's a lot. Okay? And some of you did glaze over even after I told you not to. Because it's just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We'd heard, we've heard the scriptures before. But Paul's just going on a rampage. And he starts talking about all these foolish things. You know, but to most of us as Christians, the cross, that's a wonderful thing. It's not foolishness to us. And so as a result, we, we don't quite grasp what he's saying here. But Paul needs to say this because there is an issue. And that is, in the church of Jesus Christ, when it was first being established, you need to realize, if you preach the glory of the cross of Christ, if you preach Jesus and Him crucified, and you require not circumcision, (laughs) then you get into trouble, okay? Because circumcision is going to make the Jews feel like every I is dotted and T is crossed. Let's circumcise and believe in Jesus Christ. But to believe that the cross is sufficient, that there is nothing else needed. No one else needs to bring anything to the table. The cross accomplished it. That Jesus is the Messiah. There is no other. He is the one and only Savior. And that event, that cross, is everything. You turn your eyes anywhere else and you miss the essence of everything in all of history that this comes down to. This is the center. Paul's making that clear here. And he makes it clear throughout his other epistles too. We have a north. We have a fixed reference point. Do not look somewhere else. Do not take a little side issue and make it your north. You will not know your way through the forest. You will find yourself with a little congregation near the side of a cliff. Not smack in the center of what God's intending to do in this world. The conservative church is born. Listen to the scripture that I associate with that. By the way, I'm conservative. Okay, so I am making fun of me at the same time here. For it hath been declared that there are contentions among you. The conservative church is born in Corinth. This is the conservative church. Now, for all the virtues of the conservative church of Jesus Christ, which are the ones that hold fast to the word and say, we will not budge. We will not move. You need to realize this. Now, I've spent a lot of time studying the emergent movement, the postmodern agenda in Christianity. These guys can get along with each other. Why? Because they have no fixed reference point. The whole point of their existence is there is no fixed reference point. Whatever you feel, brother, is good. And so I feel this, you feel this. Oh, and they hug. The conservatives... Choose a fixed reference point. We look at the word of God, but the problem is most of us are like, there it is. There's my fixed reference point. It's the word of God. It says it right there and God cannot lie. Yeah, but that's not what the word of God says the fixed reference point should be. I know there have been fixed reference points. That's typically what denominations are based on. Hey, they're avoiding this scripture. They are not covering this. The whole counsel of God is not being dealt with. Here we stand. That isn't where you want to die. That isn't the center. That isn't north. 
Your compass is off. We all have different and unique purposes here that are expressing the glory of the kingdom. We all have a role to play in this, but we all are about the same thing. And that is Jesus Christ. And the summary of that in the New Testament is the kingdom and the glory. Whose glory? His glory, that he would be seen. How is he going to be seen? The, the God of the universe has revealed to us how he will be seen. But we must go to the word of God without our bias, and we must allow it to speak clearly on this point and remove our entrapments that have led us into all sorts of different camps. I know this sounds impossible, and I have had my moments when I've said, I cannot imagine that the church of Jesus Christ could actually shed its biases and make Jesus Christ and him crucified the center of everything. And that we could actually have the same mind as Paul commands us to. Is it possible or not? Are those words canon? Some of us as preachers have wanted to get 1 Corinthians out of the canon because it would take care of a lot of issues. It would. Of course, it would eliminate some of our best standing points too. There's some great stuff in 1 Corinthians. However, it does create issues. Aries. This is the word in the New Testament, which means contention, strife, wrangling, and debate. Now, for those of us that stand in the front lines dealing with the truth of Jesus Christ, we're used to a little contention, okay? I am constantly dealing with standing for truth in an age when literally even the Christians are undermining the integrity of the Word of God, the integrity of the person of Jesus Christ. Am I not supposed to contend for these things? I must contend for these things. However, within the body of Christ, within the body that does take the word of God seriously, that does take Jesus Christ as who he is. We are not supposed to have Aries. I know this sounds preposterous because we've never known a church like this. But this contention, this strife, this wrangling, this debate is not supposed to hallmark us. How do I know that? Listen to how this word is used. First of all, this is the word used in 1 Corinthians. Amongst the believers. And Paul says, I have heard that there is Aries. Among you. This should not be. You are supposed to have the same mind. You are not supposed to waste your time. On these trivialities. Apollos. uh, Paul. uh, Cephas or Peter. Is Christ divided? Did Paul get crucified for you? Why are you following that train of thought? Focus. Focus church of Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans, okay? Now this is, if any of you know your book of Romans, Romans is literally talking about the debasement of the world that has gone away from God, okay? Now in this process, it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools who changed the truth of God into a lie. Now I I greatly simplified this because I'm not trying to teach on Romans 1, but I want you to realize the word eris is included in this. And this this is disgusting. None of us want to touch what is in this list. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. And, uh, what? Debate. Deceit and malignity. And that word debate is eris. The same word that was found in Corinth. This ought not to be, dear brothers and sisters. We are not supposed to have whatever this is. In 1 Corinthians 3, same book, okay? So Paul's writing, this is chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, 
Even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able. Why? For you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying, uh-oh, and strife, which is the word eris. This is amongst the Corinthian church. As a result, they're stunted in their growth. They cannot continue in their development. Whatever this is, is a soul killer. It's a body killer. And divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? That's how men behave. You are called to be Christians. Ones who become the dwelling place of Almighty God. You are supposed to house His behavior. How does He want the body of Christ to function? I know I can only understand some of the more intellectual ones in here are going, I don't know, this is, I don't know how in the world Eric expects to solve this riddle. Well, it's not that I have some great solution. I'm merely pointing at what Paul is saying. And I'm going to get down to the simplistic words of what the Bible says on this point. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to try and rescue everything. I'm going to say we as the church of Jesus Christ cannot allow this. We justify this Ares under the banner of standing for sound doctrine all the time. But God hallmarks this as being of the flesh. There is a contention for the truth of Jesus Christ in this earth. There's no doubt about it. But we need to know how within the body to stand together and united. How this works? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Okay, of the flesh is what that means. For I fear, this is 2 Corinthians, he had to write back to the church, lest when I come, I shall not find you as I would, and that I should be found unto you such as you would not. In other words, you're not going to like the way I'm going to be when I get there. Lest there be debates, there's our word again, Aries, envies, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, and tumults. Okay, now that list doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We're like, what in the world's a swelling? Well, I'm not trying to teach on swellings. I'm saying that this is something that Paul says should not remain. That's what I'm pointing out. Okay, not a huge teaching on this. Just a subtle little pointing out. Listen to Galatians. Now, this is the classic chapter on the fruit of the Spirit. But before Paul gets to the fruit of the Spirit, what does he hit? The fruit of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. That is one bad list. And what's next? Aries. This does not belong in a Christian life. Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Could you imagine if we shortened that list? And it said, the fruit of the flesh is this. Aries, they that do such a thing shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you a contender within the body? Constantly challenging the sameness of mind within. Now, you might be one fighting to bring us back to the center, to bring us back to the north. And I would encourage that. That's what Paul's doing. You could also say it about Paul. Isn't he contending with the First Corinthian church right now and saying, hey, guys, this is wrong? Is it always wrong to correct? Is it always wrong to say something? Paul's saying something. However, what he's calling out is something of the flesh in their midst. You guys are off center. Your north is incorrect. 
You are dickering and bickering about things that are not central to why Christ came. For it hath been declared, and here's just a summary, that there are contentions among you. That's what I started out with, okay? Remember when I said the conservative church is born? This is us. The emergent church is united to stand against us. Those that are standing for the truth of Jesus Christ in this generation. And they want to bring us down. By the way, I do not consider those in the emergent church Christians. This isn't Christianity. This is apostasy. What they have gone against is the center. They have gone against the word of God and what it reveals in Jesus Christ and in that cross. They have redefined it all. And I will not stand by in this generation and allow that to come under the banner of our great king. His name will not be sullied by such behavior and such thought. However, for those of us that are standing on the word of God, fixed, immovable, our king is victorious. Our king has accomplished it. He is the only way. There is a hell because he is a just God. And his mercy has been expressed. Where? On the cross. You're looking for mercy. Don't look for an empty hell. You look at the cross. That is the mercy of God revealed. Do not miss it. Paul makes that very clear. Do not look elsewhere. Stay fixed here. This is the revelation of his entire nature. In one singular event, everything unfolds from there. Everything that matters is determined from there. Every doctrine is defined from there. And that point, if you miss that point, you miss it all. Conformity unto one message. How in the world does that work? Conform to one message. Is it possible? Most of us would say, you've got to be kidding, Eric. Are you literally proposing that? I'm not sure what I'm proposing yet. However, this is what I would say Paul is encouraging us towards. In fact, I would say commanding us. I don't know what the word beseech would best be described as. But he says, do this, guys. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to these three things, that you speak the same thing. Let's not bring confusion to this earth. We're about one thing. We're about one doctrine. We're not about all this other junk out there. We are saying the same thing. What is it? Who's going to define that thing? That's what the postmoderns would say. And who among you happens to be right? God is right. His word is right. You do not bring a bias to the text. You submit to it and say, I don't care what has been said throughout the ages. A lot of people say the reason they believe this is because it's historical. The Catholic Church is historical. It doesn't mean it's right. You stand in the word of God, which has been preserved for us. You remove the barnacles from it. That's all Luther was doing. He was scraping away barnacles. Getting back to the word of God instead of the traditions of men. That you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I recognize how impossible this may seem. However, the Ellerslie experiment, since that's what we're calling this message, we literally watch this. See, we all come from different backgrounds. We don't bring up certain issues on purpose. I even ask you on the very first day. It's like, no, 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 no. We're not going to talk about that here. Some of you are itching to talk about it. I just want to find out. Stay focused. What we want to deal with is the center. Those things might have their place in the outflow of these things, but you need to have a north. 
We need to agree on our north, otherwise we're all wandering in different directions. And there is no strength of an army. The call to foolishness. First of all, there's two things happening in 1 Corinthians. Paul is defining, and he says, you know what? We need to be of one mind. We need to be of the same judgment. We need to have conformity at a certain level. I mean, this is really awkward here. Okay? We need to conform to Jesus. But then there's this other theme that comes out, which is very awkward, and I would like to pin a whole bunch on this. When you don't want to be foolish, you end up looking for all sorts of other things in Scripture to define you and to mark you. Okay, let me just preface a few things. Scripture and the Christian life is a call to look foolish in the world's eyes. Most of us just don't accept that up front. When we're signing up and saying, oh, I'd like to be a Christian, no one's telling us what the cost is. No one's explaining to us, do you realize that you are now standing against the world system and they will hate you, they will despise you, and they will consider you the biggest of idiots? Well, some of us might hesitate to sign up for this crazy thing. No one told me that. So some of us have been Christians for quite a long time, and the appeal was, this is the most intelligent manner of living. You know, it's actually true. It is the most intelligent manner. However, we want to look intelligent. When you're dealing with the philosophers of an age and you want to speak Christianity to them, you want to appeal to their intelligence. You want to appeal to their pride and say, you know what? Jesus is actually the smarter way. It's not Christianity, and I'm going to explain that here. 1 Corinthians, you'll see, this is all from 1 Corinthians. So you have one ver- chapter 1, verse 17, and then so on. You'll see it progress along the side, and we'll go into chapter 2. For Christ sent me, Paul speaking, to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Wisdom of words. The intelligence of men. The sophistry, the eloquence of men. God says, you preach my gospel. Oh, no, help. Paul, I know you're an intelligent man. Not that way. I want you to be willing to appear foolish in the way you do it. Paul's like, what? Are you stripping me of my look, my appearance? I want to look a certain way. He's a Pharisee. He's the intelligentsia in Israel. God stripped him of his confidences and says, you find your confidence in me alone. I am your power. You lean completely on me. Yes, you will look like a fool, Paul. And that's the way I will get my glory. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect, he does that. He he allows the wisdom of words to be removed from him. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 118. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Those that are perishing... The cross is foolishness. Just accept that. You know, we're going to add this to a list. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The cross is foolishness. The preaching of the cross is foolishness. So, and also, preaching is foolishness. We have a double foolishness here. Preaching, foolish. The cross, foolishness. And now we're going to preach the cross. Bad idea, God. I mean, doesn't he care about his reputation? Doesn't he want us to market him a little better? The world has a slick marketing campaign for everything they do. God's messing his up. This isn't a good plan, God. 
We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and foolishness. Now, those of you that know that scripture, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But I want you to focus on this. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block and it's foolishness. And most of us are like, that's why I'm choosing a different message. See, I follow Apollos. Yeah, I'm with Paul. I'm, I'm with Cephas. None of us want this one. I want to sound intelligent. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now listen to this in 27 29. But God has chosen, in other words, God chose it, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. How is he going to confound the wise? He's going to take the foolish things. Well, we don't like that pattern. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Who's going to get the credit for it? God. Because this is outrageously ridiculous. God, why are you doing it that way? That doesn't look good. That's not going to be seen right. He knows it. He chose it. The postmodern movement amongst Christians is attempting to fix the buck teeth of the gospel. God is a calic in the very front. And they're trying to mat it down with a glob of, of uh, gel. They're spritzing it up because he smells like a, you know, a country hick. We don't like that. That doesn't smell good. He's going to be considered a hillbilly. Buck teeth and calic. This doesn't look good. We are the body of Christ. And we take Jesus just as he was dealt. We take the truth without any varnish. Without any wax added to it. We say, that is my God. He has chosen this way. He knows what he will be looked as, looked like. He knows what it will come across like. And he does it with a smile on his face. A smirk. A twinkle in his eye. He knows exactly what he's doing. Our problem is we don't accept his method. I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Such a strange statement. Paul, why would you give up excellency of speech and wisdom? He's talking about worldly wisdom. You see, there are things that you can say to impress people. There are things that you can say which cause people to go, hmm, very good point. Very excellent argument. Who's he dealing with? He's dealing with Greeks, not just Jews. He's dealing with Greeks. What are they after? Wisdom. You see, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's like, yeah, we can't accept that. But to the Jews, I'm sorry, to the Greeks, they're looking for an argument. They're looking for a manner in which you deliver it, which makes you sound intelligent. They will only accept something that sounds intelligent. And what does Paul do? I have deliberately chosen to follow God's method, which he chose, which is foolishness. And I am not coming with the excellency of argument. I'm not just coming to bring debate into our midst. I'm coming with one singular message. Choke on it, if necessary. But those that desire it will find in it the power of God. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. How many times has he said this now? Okay. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Where does your faith rest? In a good argument? Or in the power of God, which Paul, in multiple other points in his writings, describes as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified is the gospel. 
Jesus and him crucified. I am unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which, with, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. God's brilliant strategy, wield foolishness. Does God sound that impressive here? This is God's strategy, whether we like it or not. And the reason we divide up into camps is because we want to avoid this method. We want to be intelligent. We either are like Jews who are interested in a sign or we're Greeks who are interested in wisdom. We have our approach. Very few of us want the narrow way. And I mean those of us that actually want the narrow way. We don't want the narrow way when it comes to how we present ourselves and how we present Jesus unto this world. Look at this list of foolishness. Christ crucified, which is termed a stumbling block in foolishness. The gospel, which is called the foolishness of God. Preaching, which is termed foolishness. And the preacher, Paul, who is referred to as weak and contemptible, a.k.a. foolish. Look at this scripture. This is in 2 Corinthians. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak. And his speech, contemptible. What kind of plan is this? Get a better messenger, God. This is his messenger. This is God's crafted messenger of the power of God. He is the one. Paul even says, what you see in me, do. I, 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 don't, I don't like this pattern. I don't want to follow that guy. See, we like Paul's letters. But what would we think if we saw a weak man whose speech was contemptible? He didn't come with enticing words, with eloquence. He came to demonstrate something to the people of God. He was not trying to make a flowery statement. Now we know that he makes an appeal to the Christians and he has eloquence. There's nothing wrong with eloquence. But we're talking about the representation of the truth of Jesus Christ unto the lost, unto this world. Who do we want to look good to? Them. What are, who are we trying to curry favor with? Them. We want to buddy up with the world. We are against the world. They are against us. doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we don't serve them. It doesn't mean we don't lay down our life for them. But the way that we love them is by following Jesus Christ. By showing this world that we belong to him. And then when we speak, we speak a very clear message with a fixed reference point. And we all agree. We say something... You walk up next to me, say the same thing. Someone walks up to you, says the same thing. Someone walks up to them, says the same thing. We say the same message. They hear it echo in the corners of the church of Christ. Same message, same mind, same judgment. That's not the way we are right now. There's Aries among us. Do we realize that this is God's pattern? Foolishness. Do we accept this as God's pattern? The pattern of the fool is God's chosen and pleasing pattern. Just look at the prophets throughout the ages. He takes the contemptible, the things the earth would say, you've got to be kidding. And he speaks through it. Wraps a loincloth around John the Baptist, gives him a Nazarite vow to keep. The guy's hair is all mangy, his beard's all long. I don't know how well he smelled. And he eats locust and wild honey. Who is the preparation for the coming Messiah? That. And then the Messiah comes. We always picture this dazzling 
handsome, leading man. What does it say in Scripture, though? That's an interesting question. Uh, before I get to that, do not read your press clippings. I don't know if, uh, if I were to give my personal experience on this. Some of you don't have press clippings. I, unfortunately, have had press clippings. And for the most part, I don't read press clippings. Okay, I could say 99.99999% of them I don't read. However, there is that part of you that every now and again wants to find out what someone is thinking. Don't follow that bait. Okay? Do not read your press clippings. You can always hold on to this. This would be a great graduation speech that I should give one of these days. Do not read them. Okay, so I go on to Amazon, and I don't know why I was there, but I went down to comments. And there, someone made a comment there that was, I mean, they gave me a one, you know, for, for some book. I don't remember which one it was. They gave me a one, you know, one star, which I think is the lowest you can give. I don't even know that you can give zero stars, can you? Uh, okay, they gave me a one. And they said, this book lacks any mind. There's zero intelligence in it, okay? So I'm, I'm listening to this thing, and I'm reading it, and it says, I prefer writers more like Anne Lamott, okay, a classic emergent writer. And so I am deeply offended by this, and I'm thinking, no intelligence. I'll show you intelligence. I was in the process of writing a foreword to one of our books. Well, which book was that? What? God's Gift to Women, which is sort of a funny uh, book. I mean, it's, it's a hilarious book, serious, but it's more lighthearted. It's for a, you know, a mid-level audience. It's not highly intellectual. And so here I have this mid-level, you know, not highly intellectual book that I've just written, and then I have this comment here. I'll show them. So I wrote this foreword to it, and the editor came back, and they were like, Eric, I had to read your foreword with a dictionary uh, by me. Uh, there was at least ten words. I had no clue what they meant. That's right. Uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, they said I wasn't intelligent. Now, this highly intelligent editor doesn't even know the words I'm using. That's intelligence! Okay, as we all know, that's stupidity. God is interested in a clear message. God is interested in being heard. His message being discerned. We want to look a certain way to this world. We don't want them to trash us and give us ones. We want them to give us five stars. Please, world. I need your approval. How about God? He says he has chosen the foolish things. If you want to go his way, you choose the foolish way. It's not foolish in heaven. When we get to heaven, God's not looking at us, giving us one star. He's going, you're an idiot. It is truly the greatest intelligence. But it is taking the way that we are built. It is acknowledging our lambness and saying, I have nothing to bring. And allowing this world to see our lambness, to see how weak we are and that we have one dependency and that's upon our shepherd. And we make no bones about it. I'm nothing. I have nothing to bring to you and I'm not going to try and impress you. I'm going to show you my shepherd. He's the one that should impress you. I glory in one thing and that's him. Not in my words of wisdom and my arguments and my philosophies. I glory in him. I've given it all up as dung. All this stuff that the world applauded. 
I've thrown it all out. I have one agenda. Yes, world, I know you look at me with contempt because you see me as a little helpless, frightened lamb. But this little lamb is the face of a lion because I have confidence in him. And I will not be moved. Christianity. We don't want to be seen as intellectually inferior. We want a Christianity that looks smart, hip, and intelligent. Let's admit it, and then let's dump it overboard with Paul. Paul dumped it overboard. He did. He wanted the same thing. He wanted all his cronies and the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Pharisaical uh, buddies of his past to be able to look at him and say, you know what, he does have a good point here. That's a good argument, Paul. Paul can bring an argument. We all know it. But Paul was willing to be deemed the refuse of this world that he may win us to Jesus Christ. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Paul the Apostle. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, which means beauty. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus Christ. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. David, Jesus Christ. This is a picture of the cross. Who in the right mind comes up with the ultimate rescue strategy and makes the hero look defeated? Who who thinks this way? Who picks a cross? Who picks nakedness? Who picks absolute weakness? Who's born inside of a little girl, a virgin girl, and then grows up and comes out of Nazareth where everything that's disgusting comes out of? Who surrounds himself with fishermen and tax collectors? Who does this? The same God that has called you. Don't get it mixed up. God didn't suddenly get his act together and get hip in the past 2,000 years. God has the same method. And he's not looking to impress this earth. He's looking to save it. And this is his means of doing it. The deliberate step towards foolishness. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does Paul know anything more than this? Absolutely. And we know he knows more than that, because he wrote most of the New Testament. But look at this. He's given us a north. He's given us a fixed reference point. And you can say, well, Jesus didn't come till 39 books were finished in the Old Testament. How can he overrule the entire Old Testament and become the fixed reference point? Because he perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament. He was the Old Testament made flesh. He fulfilled the canon test to perfection. He established the canon and then fulfilled it. He is the root and the offspring of David. And as a result, he... The person of Jesus Christ has the divine right to rule and control our lives. And he became the North Star. He became the center. Our compasses were fixed to him. What do you say, Jesus? Because whatever you say defines the rest of our course of life. All the Old Testament is interpreted from him. Even though he followed the Old Testament. He is the key that unlocks it all. 
Because he fulfilled it all. Everything that flows out of him is what matters. Your doctrine must stem from the same thing Paul's did. When he is coming to the Corinthian church, what does he do? He purposely limits himself. And he gives the North Star. He gives the fixed reference point. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is there any more to it? Of course. But guess what? It all flows out of this. Your doctrinal reasonings, your conclusions must have a north. You must know why you are thinking what you're thinking. You must know why you're living what you're living. And it must stem from this. This is the seed through which the plant of renown known as the great kingdom of heaven grows in this earth and in you. When Jesus is planted in you, it's this. This is the message. When you are preaching the kingdom, which Paul did everywhere, what was he doing? He was preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. But let him that glories glory in this. This is in the Old Testament. That he understands and knows me. Not that he has some great doctrinal arguments on the pre-existence of God, but that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord which exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. What should we glory in? What should we bask in? What should we boast in? The fact that we know our God. Jesus Christ and him crucified. One is a person The other is an event and an accomplishment. Those two things together make up and sum up the entirety of what our faith springs forth from. What our lives live for the tribute of, for the glory of. The power of God. For the preaching of the cross is unto them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Do you guys remember that one scripture that says they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof? What good does it do to have a form of religion, to have a form of Christianity, but then to deny the power of it? What was it that Paul decided he would literally come to them knowing nothing else but? It was Jesus Christ and him crucified, which over and over and over again he defines as the power of God. He came and said, I will scrap all this, all the sophistry of men's wisdom, and I will bring you a singular thing, the power of God, that your faith may rest in that what he says. We preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, since I'm teaching on power, I have the power of God emphasized here, but we preach Christ crucified. And what is it? After all of Paul's little in-between statements, Christ crucified is Christ, the power of God. You need power. You need to be rescued, but you can't do it in your own strength. You're listless and helpless. You're little lambs. I got a secret for you, and it's Christ crucified. What would that do for me? You're obviously not hearing me. Because when you understand what that cross is, you recognize that that is the great rescue strategy. You see, you have an enemy within. It's known as the old man in the flesh. And guess what Jesus Christ did on that cross? He dealt him a fatal blow. He crucified the old man with him 2,000 years ago. You got a penalty looming over you. Death. You have a covenant with death. You're in rebellion to God. What are you going to do about it? You have no way out. The cross is your solution. There's no other solution. 
Do you know that there's newness of life in Jesus Christ? How is it gained? By setting you free from the covenant of death. And setting you free into a new marriage, a new covenant with him. Where did that happen? The cross. Yes, the resurrection, the ascension, the outpouring of the spirit is also important. But guess where it flows from? Guess where it was purchased? The cross. The cross. Jesus on the cross. This is why we preach Jesus and him crucified. It is every singular rescue principle that your soul needs to be brought up out of the mire, washed clean, feet set in a rock, the impetus of God Almighty stuck in your very soul where your life now works and you too can be a fool in this age for Jesus Christ. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. He doesn't say, for it is so smart sounding. I can go anywhere in this world and people are impressed with how wise I sound. He says it is the power of God. That's why I'm unashamed of it. It does the rescuing work. I watch it day in and day out. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such, turn away. Anyone wants to empty the gospel of its power, anyone wants to empty the cross of its true merit and its work, turn away. You can call it contention, but that's actually obedience. We are called as the body of Christ to have one mind and one message. If we fix ourselves on that north star, on Jesus Christ and him crucified, we have something to stand on. Are you more apt to be the Jew or the Greek? For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, I've given the illustration before. Let's say there's a banquet in the back, and God says, I've given you a banquet, and you're sitting here on the front step. What should you do? You should get up and go back and take care of that banquet. It's given for you. Now, what do most of us do? We sit on the step, and we say, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to you know, look like an idiot and get up and find out that it's not there. Do you believe your God? Can he lie? No. Well, then if he told you there's a banquet, there's a banquet. You take it by faith. Even if you do not see that banquet for the first 30, 40 steps along that way. You reckon it as true because he promised. That's faith. But guess what the Jew wants? The Jew wants it to be trucked out here. You bring it out to me, stick a spoon in my mouth, and let me taste it. Give me that sign, and I will believe. Show me the wounds in his hands and in his side and in his feet. Then I'll believe. Jesus is blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Which one of you? Are you going to be the Jew? There's a lot of us that could fall into that camp. But there's a whole other camp here too, and that's the Greek. The Greek seeks after wisdom. Impress me. Give me a good argument that I can't refute. Do we play that game? Is that the way we live our Christianity? Are we trying to be smart? The Jew wants an incredible message. The Jew wants to hear intelligence. They want to know that they're sidling up with something that is even smarter than what this other guy down the street has. They want wisdom, but men's wisdom. God's wisdom appears to be foolishness to this world. And the Greek does not have taste buds for it. Do not try and meet the Greek where he's at. Do not try and meet the Jew where he's at. God meets each one of us at the cross. It's a stumbling block to the Jew. Foolishness to the Greek. And that's where we stand. We know that the Jew may reject it, trip over it. We know that the the Greek may laugh in our face, call us idiots. 
But we know that this is the power of God unto salvation. And if those out there in this world are going to come to Jesus Christ, they come through the foolishness of preaching such a foolish message. That's God's manner, not mine. That's God's. Whoa. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We don't bring the Greek argument. We bring the power of God in and through Jesus and Him crucified. We bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing full well that it's a stumbling block. Knowing full well that it's foolishness. But knowing full well that this is the means that God has chosen to save those that are lost. I watch it all the time. I know the power of this. There are people that come here that hate Christianity. And then suddenly they just hear it in all its foolish glory. And I go, I don't know what it is, but I see it. It's God's way. Who gets the credit? No flesh can glory because it's stupidity in this world. No one would choose this means of reaching the lost. God did. Paul's singular focus. In Philippians 3, Paul goes on, says some things here which are very often memorized by many of us as we're growing up as Christians. But I want to break this down and recognize who it is that's speaking. It's the same guy that's commanding all these other things that we're talking about. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Now, so many of us have heard these things that they don't stand out. And we recognize he's talking about his North Star. He's talking about what wakes him up in the morning. He's talking about why he lives. He's talking about why he gives his message. This is what moves him. What is it? That I may win Christ. Gain him. Gain the full benefit of him. Be as near as is possible to my king, that I may be found in him. In him, that when this world comes against me, I would be secure. When the judgment day comes, I would be found in my Christ. That I may know him. Not just know about him. Know him. Every detail about my king. I want to know you in every way. This is the way a bridegroom seeks after his bride. That I may know her. That I may know him. Please, I want to be close. That I may know the power of his resurrection. I need something in this body, God. If I'm going to know you, if I'm going to represent you, I need you in me. I need the power of your resurrection life. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And that cross, Lord Jesus, that I preach. And that Jesus, is Jesus in this cross, may I be conformable unto Jesus and bear his nature. And unto his death. That others may know. I want to share in his sufferings. What kind of mentality is this? You'd call it foolishness in this world. And this is the wisdom of God. So what is the one message? Now I beseech you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. That you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Is this possible? Is there really only one message? 
Let's talk about what the message is not. Now, I have what would sort of be like, remember we talked about the Jew and the Greek? The Jew wants a sign and the Greek wants wisdom. I have two illustrations of that, and I'm going to spend a little time because I know what is happening in our uh, conservative culture today. We have two great movements in Christianity right now. Two great movements. One is towards the emergent church, okay, which they don't call themselves the emergent church, but it's the postmodern church. They, they made this declaration that the emergent church is dead. It's not dead. It's just changed his look. It's liberalism. It's the undermining of the integrity of the word of God. It's the voice of the serpent that says, did God really say? And they're redefining the whole thing. And there's this mass exodus from Christianity into that under the banner of Christianity, even conservative Christianity. It's under the banner of many times. It's extraordinary. Okay. That's one of the movements. The other movement is towards the reformed church. It's the return to the word of God. It's the return to the age-old principles and foundations. I don't know if you guys know what I'm setting you up for. What it is not. Now, remember Paul's list? This is not Paul's list. That I may gain the gift of healing. That I may be found upon a stage in front of a large audience healing people from their diseases. That I may someday be considered a John G. Lake, a Smith Wigglesworth, or a John Wimber, a man of powerful demonstration signs and wonders. That I may know the power of holding an audience spellbound. That I may know the fellowship of his healing ministry, being made conformable into the pattern of great healing men before me. Is healing bad? No. Is it the center? No. What was Paul after? Was that his list? Did Paul heal? Absolutely. What did it flow out of? Christ and him crucified. You do not get off center. What it is not. This is the opposite end. This is the Greeks. That I may gain a clear understanding of the five points of Calvin. That I may be found worthy to be included in the inner circle of the intelligentsia. That I may someday know John Piper, R.C. Sproul, or John MacArthur and be esteemed in their eyes. That I may know the power of having the knowledge of my soteriological doctrines down pat. That I may know the fellowship of the Reformed Brotherhood being made conformable under the framework of Augustinian thought and reason. Is it wrong? Is it error? Is it all false? No. Is it the center? What it is that I may win Christ. When you wake up in the morning, what is your agenda? That you gain more knowledge? That you gain more arguments? That you gain a broader foundation for your philosophical treaties? That I may win Christ. That I may be found in him. That I may know him. That I may know the power of his resurrection. That I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm not against healing. Any of you know me know that as a fact. Had a whole message called, Does God Still Heal? I made stances on those points that have cost me greatly in the conservative side of Christianity who just don't want to touch anything to do with healing. I believe in the power of God, but I know where the power of God comes from. It comes from the gospel. It comes from the center. What does it matter if we heal the masses and they go to hell? I'm interested in people seeing Jesus. I'm interested in them seeing my shepherd. I'm interested in winning him, knowing him, being found in him. This is what I want to see the church of Christ rally around. It does not mean I want us to flush out 
or flush down the toilet. Any deeper thinking. But we must weigh it very watchfully in our souls to realize that we must not bring Eris to bear in the body of Christ. Anything that would distract from this. When you enter into any conversation, what is the end of that conversation? It better be this. I don't care what it is. You're a Christian. What are you here for? Every little discussion, every little message. If I give a sermon that does not end with Jesus Christ in that list, I have failed you as a pastor. If I have given you truth that informs you, but truth that does not perform within you, I have failed you as a pastor. I have failed you as an example of one who would deliver the goods of Jesus Christ. I am not interested in feeding your intellect. I'm interested in seeing your life infused with Jesus Christ. I'm interested in you gawking lovingly and adoringly upwards towards your shepherd to say, he's my solution. He's my everything. My faith rests in his power, in his victory, in his purchase. That's my singular goal. And I know I will not impress you with my great intelligence, but I hope I impress you with my great love for Jesus Christ. And I hope that it inspires you to say, I want more of what that man has. Because this is everything to me. I've read all the books. I know all the arguments. I know all the debates today. I know a lot more than I preach on. And I choose every week to eliminate and to say, I'm not going to bring that up. Nope, I'm not going to talk about that. There are things that could make me look more intelligent. I'm deliberately choosing to be a one-note wonder. The guy had one hit. He was always talking about Jesus. May that be said of me. On my tombstone, he had one message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. May it be said of me. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The great focus, message, and meditation of the believer. This is our food. Day in, day out. It's the focus of our faith. It's known as the power of God. You want to have confidence in something, you better have confidence in something that works. And so this message is what works. This is the truth that we rally around. Where is your confidence? Where is your faith? Where is your hope? Centered on Jesus and Him crucified. It's the catalyst of our understanding. It's the wisdom of God. Does God want us to be idiots? No. But where does the wisdom come from? The cross! Your mind will only be attuned to heavenly matters to discern spiritual things if you see Jesus and Him crucified. This is the wisdom of God. It's the object of our love and affection. It is the wellspring of our joy. It is the source of our peace. It is the power of God into salvation. Get this one. It is the root of every doctrine. When we have doctrinal disputes, let's get back to center. What matters? Does that matter? Does that matter? Does it really help you see Jesus more clearly? Is this really helping you? This is a waste of time most of the time when we're dealing with doctrinal disputes. It is a waste of time. I'm interested in talking about Jesus. That's what I'm here for. More of Jesus. Everything is about him. I'm sorry. Everything is about Jesus and him crucified. Doesn't that sound like an oversimplification to what we as Christians deal with? Doesn't that sound boring? It's like, that's all we're going to talk about? There's a lot to it. Just hang around me for a while. You'll realize I can get a lot of messages out of this. For the rest of my life, for all of eternity, every pastor on earth could spend their entire meditations on this. And everything flows out of it. Everything that's living. Everything that will change this world. 
Every message is about Jesus, exalting him, glorifying him, and increasing our faith in him. Every message flows out of the exaltation of him, his work, and, his purchase, and the purchase of his work. Every discussion is about Jesus or increases our faith in his work. Every doctrine stems from the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and the victory of Jesus. Everything that is not born out of this faith focus on Jesus and this great cross work, increasing the understanding of it, the adoration of him, and the ever-increasing faith in him and his work is off-center and a distraction from the center. Engine truths, the great life-giving pith. You take a seed, and that seed has two dimensions. It has an inner pith, and it has an outer husk, or a shell. What brings life? The inner pith. What protects the life? The outer shell. Do we throw out the outer shell because it doesn't have life? No. But we also don't just want to have an outer shell without life. What good is an outer shell? You can brag about it all you want. But if you don't have any life-giving substance within it, it's a useless seed. However, life-giving substance without the protection of truth will also die. We need them both. It's the way God designed it. However, what you'll see at Ellerslie is that we focus on what we could call the engine truths. These are the truths that make Christianity work. That's how we started out our Ellerslie time. There's a lot of other things to know in Christianity. There's a lot in that Bible, and God wants us to know every inch of it. But we must start with what causes this system to work. What is that? <clears throat> Jesus and him crucified. I know that sounds overly simplistic. However, we spend nine weeks every day for hours on end talking about nothing else. Jesus and him crucified. And this, for those of you that can attest to this, this is what brings life. You focus on that cross. You see that cross. And guess what? You find Jesus. And when you find Jesus, you find everything. Everything that goes with Jesus, which is resurrection life, which is ascension to the right hand, seated in that place, in the Epiranios, in the heavenly place next to the Father. It's everything for all of eternity to be found in him, to know him. Where was it gained? At the cross. In who? Jesus. The great life-giving pith. There are truths that perform as opposed to truths that inform. I can give a message on repentance. I could tell you all about the Greek word, the etymology of that Greek word, its uses throughout Scripture. However, if it does not breed repentance in you, was it of any value? What good is it to know about something if it doesn't bring life to you? Every sermon, every true preaching must bring us to the cross, to Jesus, and then outward from there. This is our source, this is our engine, and then it brings us out to actual repentance. When you preach, you could not even mention the word repentance. And it could bring about repentance in a soul. Guess what? Which is more valuable? The message that brought about repentance, not the one that informed about repentance. Is it bad to know about repentance? No. Because that's what helps you understand that it's true repentance. You must have the shell and the husk. But what trumps it? The inner life. Without the inner life, we have nothing. So we must have both, but we must make sure our priority is on the pith and the life, the gospel. Jesus, I'm going to go through a big long list here, okay? And I'm basically going to say, this is Jesus and this is him crucified. Okay, now there's actually more to it than this. This was my 10-minute meditation, okay? It is going to do a sorry job of enunciating Jesus Christ and him crucified. But nonetheless, 10 minutes is better than none. Jesus, he who created the heavens and the earth, 
He who is God in the flesh. He who perfectly demonstrates God's glory. He who enunciates God's holiness. He who reveals God's perfect righteousness. He who brings us God's salvation. He who manifests the love of God. He who is the way to the Father. He who was without spot or blemish. He who perfectly fulfilled the Messiah test. He who proved to be the sent of the Father with perfect canonicity. He who fulfilled the scriptures and validated their authenticity and perfect integrity. He who took the wrath of the Father and was accursed for man's rescue. He who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He who was crucified in obedience to the Father. He who redeemed man with his blood. He who atoned for man's sin was a satisfying offering in man's place. He who was a curse condemned in man's stead. He who destroyed the power of sin and death. He who overcame the devil. He who triumphed over the grave. He who died but rose again on the third day. He who rent the barrier between God and man. He who brought man forgiveness of sins. He who brought man cleansing from his sins. He who brought man victory over sin. Jesus he who is man's robe of righteousness. He who, is condemned, he who has condemned sin in the flesh. He who created an avenue for man's freedom from the law of sin and death. He who provided himself as man's vehicle of victory and man's passage unto the Father. He who ascended to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. He who has given man a new life in himself. He who has made, new, uh, made man a new creature in himself. He who has supplied man a new citizenship in himself. He who has seated man with him in the heavenly places in himself. Jesus, he who is over all things... He to whom all things and all the heavens and earth are subjected. He who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He who went to the Father, the Spirit of God might come to believing man. Jesus, he who purchased man the opportunity to have his very life, his very spirit, his very power within. He who made the physical body of every believer, of believing man, his actual temple. He who in reality desires to live and move in the body of a believing man. He who will enable and empower the believing man to obey. He who will cause the believing man to actually triumph over sin. He who will cause the believing man to live as he lived, love as he loved, and do even greater things than he did while here on earth. Jesus, he who supplied us the great gospel that we might know his indwelling power. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might be more than conquerors. He who supplied us the great gospel that we might partake of his divine nature. He who gave us not a powerless form of religious godliness, but himself, godliness is himself in spirit power. He who causes believing man to be immovable and unstoppable. He who is the head of this immovable, unstoppable juggernaut known as the church. Jesus, he who has brought believing man into a place of heavenly adoption. He who has called believing man into intimate communion and fellowship. He who has placed his name upon believing man and set his seal of love upon him. He who desires to be known intimately and well by those he has redeemed. He who has the deepest affections for those who have come to him in faith. Jesus, he who demands absolute and instant obedience. He who commands that man yield up his life to him. He who beckons man to pick up his cross and follow him. He who says, count the cost before you come to him. He who says that he will spew lukewarmness out of his mouth. He who commands man to repent from his sins, his old life, his old deeds, and his every idol. He who commands that man walk in faith, unswerving confidence in his ability to perform that which he promises. He who commands that man confess his sins one unto another. He who commands that man must forgive others as he has forgiven them. He who commands that man must renounce his every tie with darkness. He who commands that man must deny himself. He who commands that man let not sin reign any longer in his mortal body. He who, when he begins a work, is faithful to bring it to completion. And he who doesn't just command, but enables man to obey his every command. Jesus, he who is the rescuer, the great intercessor. He who calls his followers to live as he lived. And thusly rescue the weak and needy and intercede for the vulnerable and oppressed just as he did. He who calls his followers to take what he has freely given them. And share it with those that do not have. He who calls his followers to reveal his nature, his behavior and his attitude in every circumstance, every encounter. He who first loved 
that his beloved followers might demonstrate his great love to this world about. And that's just the beginning. Any of you that go through Ellerslie know that that's Ellerslie. That's what we meditate upon. That's what we deal with day in and day out. That's Jesus. And that's the cross. Everything that flows out of it is life and life abundant. Support truths. So we had engine truths and we have support truths. How do we define support truths? The facts that protect the life-giving pith. When we define the north, these are the truths that must be defended. They are the buttress, the reinforcement to protect the life. So, if you find yourself on some doctrinal errand, running here and there, dealing with things that have no protection of that list, no value, no input into that list, they're not support truths. Don't try and justify any more time on them. You spend your time dealing with that which supports and builds strong the kingdom of heaven. Here's just a, a few lists. I mean, there's thousands of these. Why do we trust the Bible? What is his righteousness? Why it is it why it is important? What is repentance? How does it work? Why is it important to confess our sins? Why do we need to pray? How do I pray? What does it mean to reckon? Those things help direct us. In other words, someone could say, no, you're saved by grace. What's grace? That's a support truth. You need to know what it is. Otherwise, you don't know what you're saved by. In other words, when you're focused on the cross, you need to know how the cross works. You need the support truths to enunciate, to bring it to life, to bring color and amplification to it. Spending our best energies on the things that amplify Christ. That which matters most. How do we know what those things are? It's what Jesus himself and the rest of the scriptures spend their best energies on. What did Jesus spend his time on? What did he talk about? What did he focus on? What did Paul focus on? What was Paul's resolve? What did he preach? I say we focus there. Don't you think that's reasonable? Why in the world would we come up with doctrines and emphasize doctrines that aren't the center? For instance, we do not start with a debatable doctrine and reason out the gospel from it. I'm going to get specific here, don't worry, and it will make you very uncomfortable. Okay, here's one of them. The evidence of tongues. The way we please God is by speaking in tongues. Was this really his great end? Okay, we have entire denominations that have divided from the rest of the church because tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they stand firm on this point, will actually divide from the rest of the body on this point because it is to them center. Was this God's great purchase? Are you about the gift or the giver? You may even be right. What is your center? Jesus and him crucified. I do not see Paul saying Jesus, him crucified, and the tongues that he left. That isn't the center, and you must not get distracted by it. Sabbatarianism. The way we please God is by keeping a Saturday Sabbath. Was this really his great end? Jesus and him crucified is our end goal. What day of the week we keep a Sabbath? Think about it. Is that what Christ came to define? Was this his end game? No. Therefore, it shouldn't be your distraction. It doesn't even mean you're wrong. But it is not the dividing point. Do not allow Ares into the body of Christ on something that isn't the center. We have a North Star. God defined the North Star. Get it straight, Church of Jesus Christ. 
The preservation of God's sovereignty. Uh Uh-oh. That we may... That way, the way we please God is by preserving the understanding of God's sovereignty. Was this really his great end? The sovereignty of God is not the gospel. I just went through the gospel. You'll notice I didn't mention the sovereignty of God. Do I believe in the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. The Bible testifies to it. Is this the center? You see, they reason the gospel from sovereignty. Everything is defined. The five points of Calvinism are defined from sovereignty. Yet that isn't the North Star. We start with a North Star and we reason outward. It does not mean we don't come to the same conclusion. But I'm saying that is the problem. And we have debates and errors in our midst because of it. We get back to the North Star. You'll notice, I'm not saying the five points are wrong. We could have plenty of debate over it. But I want you to realize, every single one of those is a response to the conflict over a very, very specific issue. And it's a distraction, Church of Jesus Christ. I actually am sick and tired of the debate between Arminianism and Calvinism. You ask me and I'll get you on a different topic. I have very strong opinions on the matter. I've studied it in depth for many years. However, here's my opinion. It is a distraction from the center. I want us to be talking about Jesus. And if Jesus said, all I want you to know is God's sovereignty. My great message to you is God's sovereignty. May you know that he is in control of all. We know that that's true, but that wasn't the center of his message. That wasn't the center of Paul's message. Beware the snare of the Greek. Wasting your life on religious philosophy and missing Jesus. The intellectuals mustn't rule the roost in the church of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Who rules the roost in the church of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, it's Jesus. But who's going to be at the helm? The intellectuals? That's who most of us esteem. The ones who know their Greek and their Hebrew. The ones who know all the answers to the questions. Who do I want to follow in the church of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you. But rather the simple men and women marked by childlike faith in Jesus Christ who actually live out Christianity in power, in love, and in absolute purity. They must be our leaders and our inspiration. You look at the men and the women that I revere, that's it. I'm interested not in your intelligence, not in your IQ quotient, not in your arguments. I'm interested in your life lived. You live it before me, I'll follow. I want to see the fire of God in your belly. I want to see rivers of living water gushing forth out of you. I want to see the hallmark of the living God on earth in and through your body, in and through your obedience, in and through your yieldedness. That is the testimony of Christianity throughout the ages, not your ability to argue a point. Debate of the Christian elite. The reason this got under my skin and what has driven me uh, to this edge, this precipice where I was like, dear God, you don't really want me to give this message, do you? You know what? Most of my friends are Calvinists. So what am I doing? This is craziness, isn't it? No, this is an appeal to the body of Christ to get centered. I'm not even going to try and talk them out of their position. I want them to center. And I want them to leave that crazy discussion to the side. Do not mess with the body of Christ. Do not trample underfoot the center, the North Star. Let's keep focused. The bait of the Christian elite. Leslie and I were sitting down with a leader in the Calvinist uh, Reformed movement. We have a great relationship with them. And uh, they had a radio show. We were on the radio show. And the topic came up, as it inevitably does, uh, with 
uh, with this person, and it got to the point of Calvinism and our position on it. And I said, I refuse to make that the center. I refuse to sign off on five points and make that an issue. And here's, here's the comment. You will not be accepted in and amongst the Reformed community as long as you don't. There are big events all the time. See, the Reformed community likes me. They like me because I stand firm on the Word of God. But I have something sitting in front of me, and it is this. Eric, you change your North Star. You make this your North Star. You make this the principal point of your argument and your message. And we will accept you. We will invite you to our big conferences. You can have a voice in our midst. I told Leslie, I tell you what, that was a palpable bait for me. Because I'm sick and tired of being diminished with this message. All I have to do is say, yeah, I agree. You know what I said? I said, so if I said, okay, yeah, I'm fine with those five points. They said, they'd know you didn't mean it. That's what they said. They know you wouldn't mean it. I'm not against a Calvinist. Like I said, my best friends in most of the cases are Calvinists. I'm not against Calvinists. I'm against someone wasting their mind and their energies on this distraction. I don't really care what Augustine said. I care what Jesus said. And if Augustine wants to line up with the word of God and testify of my great King Jesus, I'm right there with him. But I do not fear a man. I do not tremble and revere men's opinions. I want Jesus. God does not say, you will know my disciples by their grasp of the doctrines of Calvin. But he does say that you will know them by their agape. Do you see the distinction there? We have an entire side of Christianity. Remember what I just described. You guys need to connect dots on this. We cannot include you, Eric, unless you testify of your doctrines. That they match with the five points. You see what I'm saying? How will you know? How will you know if you should include someone? How, what's the testimony of someone's life if they belong in your circle? Is it because they sign off on a few points that aren't even the center? It's because of agape. How does agape get there? If you remember last week's message. Jesus in you. What is this about? Jesus and him crucified. Him in you. Him changing you. Him turning this world upside down through you. It's agape. This is how we know that Christ is alive and at large within us. It's not because of our mental arguments. Hudson's summer spot. Hudson has a log. It's not a very big log. Hi, buddy. Uh, it's about this big, and he colored some blue chalk on it. And he sits on this log. I didn't know that. When some students were coming over, I found this log out on our deck, and I took it behind the house. And Hummer, uh, Hudson came out. I was like, what'd you do with my log? What'd you do with my summer spot? He calls it his summer spot. And he sits on his log, and this is what he said. This is a quote. He says, I sit on my log and mind my own business. Minding God's business versus minding our own business. So thank, thank you, Hudson, for that illustration. You know that God has a business? There are things in this universe that belong to him. He is in charge of them, and he knows how to deal with them. These are his business. To be all in all is his business. To save, to rescue, to help, to supply, to feed. I'm going to just go through these so you can see them quickly, but uh, these notes will all be online. To heal, to make whole, to restore, to redeem. 
To rule, to govern, to decide, to command. To refine, to train, to discipline, to teach, to comfort, to counsel. Okay, God has a big job. You have a job. Why don't you mind your own business? You see, what most of us are trying to do, especially in the Greek side of things, is we're minding God's business. We're like, well, God, how does this whole thing work? Just obey. Just do what God is asking you to do. Why in the world are you so distracted with that? The Greeks are interested in that. You, little lamb, one of little intellect, just humble yourself before the Almighty God and recognize you're not God. It's okay. He's in charge of those things. The believers work to prove he is the all in all. How do we do that? Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God. In other words, this is your assignment from God. This is it. That you believe on him whom he hath sent. Big job description, huh? It's like, is that all you're giving me, God? You do that and you'll be doing everything. You'll be doing everything you were intended to do. You stay focused, little lamb. You stay focused and do it right. Letting go of the Greekness. Accepting the little mind in order to gain the heavenly one. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Childlike. Little job. I need to believe. It's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. It all flows out of that. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. This is literally a decision of David to say, I will not consider those things that are too great for me. God's in charge of those things. I'm going to spend my time and my energies and my mental faculties on that which he has entrusted to me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Listen to this line. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked... Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered, this is Job speaking, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What was his response? I thought too highly of my own mind. I thought too highly of my own intellect. I thought I could understand the ways of you. That I attempted to do and to discern and to explain what only you understand. There are things in the Christian life that God wants us to know and to understand. And I think you should pursue it. Because it's knowing Christ you know these things as a natural outflow. But there are other things that have been debatable from the beginning. How God works within the soul of a man to awaken him. To make a debatable contention 
over the fact of if they had to be regenerated before or if it was the work of provenient grace. Either way, it was God that did it. Who gets the credit for salvation? He does. Why in the world are we disputing about such ridiculousness? See my opinion on that one? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Think on these things. This is from Contentions 4.8. Okay, just so you know. This is from Contentions 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things pertain to soteriology... Whatsoever things are fascinating, whatsoever things are Augustinian, whatsoever things are of import to a discussion on eternal security, whatsoever things pertain to God's sovereignty, whatsoever things are of reformed theology, if there be any mention of the five points of Calvin, and if there be any agreement with the doctrine of regeneration, think on these things. And I want you to know, that's humorous, but that is literally how a majority of our Christians today that are conservative reason. When they think on something, that's what they're thinking on. This is how they decide if something is healthy or unhealthy. I propose that that is actually not what we are supposed to be thinking on. Listen to this line. All our most zealous fighting men are being distracted. As men, this is a man issue mostly. As Leslie has said, and there are plenty of exceptions to this. There are girls that get caught up into this debate as well. However, this is mainly a man issue. Men, instead of being in the center of what God intends for them, and ironically, it usually is the most zealous, the most hardy, the most ready to give up their lives for Jesus and Him crucified. And what do they get distracted with? This. This is a distraction for the men. This is not what it's about. This is not the center. Stay focused, men. We are losing our strongest and our best into the catacombs of theology and doctrinal dispute as opposed to standing for the weak in a generation to defend the cross of Christ, to stand for the integrity of who Jesus is, that he is the perfect match for the Messiah, that he has the divine right to rule and control the nations, and we must submit. We're losing preachers and they're becoming disputers. We need our men. And I refuse to back down on this point. This is significant for our age. This issue has hollowed out Christianity for thousands of years. And I say, let's have one mind. We're about our shepherd, our shepherd's business. We let him do his business, we sit on our summer spot. And we mind our business. Think on these things. Philippians 4.8. This is not contentions 4.8. This is Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Paul is saying, I'm a template for what this looks like. What you've seen in me, I want you to do this. What did he do? He limited his message. He appeared a fool. He came with speech contemptible before the Corinthian church. He said, I'm willing to look the fool to seem like I only have one thing to say over and over and over and over again. 
Are you willing to follow, follow in the footsteps of such a man as he followed Christ? That's my challenge. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so what you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think on this. Jesus. Cherish him, adore him, worship him, know him, believe him, trust him, yield him, follow him, obey him, marvel at him, suffer with him, live unto him, and die for him. Oh, and think on this too. Jesus crucified. Cherish his work, know it, reckon it, yield to it, believe it, be transformed by it, let it free you, remake you, renew you, protect you, preserve you, shield you, acquit you, redeem you, wash you, resurrect you, seat you in the heavenly place and supply you reason, purpose, and meaning to your life. The secret to a one-message church. Is it possible to have a one-message church? I'm sweating up here. I am so hot and I'm so spent. This week has been one challenging work in my soul to get me to the point where I was willing to speak this, but to speak it in love, to not diminish those that stand on some of the side issues, to not try and criticize the side issues. I'm not against tongues. I'm not against healing. I'm not against Sabbaths. I'm not against understanding how salvation works. I'm a big fan of it. I talk about it all the time. However, there are things that are distracting from the center, from the engine. I'm not going to even try and talk you out of Calvinism or Arminianism. You'll notice this. I don't try and convert people from their denominations. That isn't my goal. My goal is to appeal to the center. We as the Church of Jesus Christ need a North Star. I would hope that we can agree on what that North Star is. My proposal to you, and if I'm wrong on this, I would encourage you to bring Scripture to me and not Calvin. Bring Scripture to me Showing me a different North Star. What I'm presenting is Jesus and Him crucified. And we reason outward from there. Our doctrines that matter have to relate to that. It must support that. It must encourage that. Jesus must be high and lifted up. Do not follow the Greek bait. The Greeks long for wisdom. Do not trip over that. Men want wisdom. We want to look together. We want to look intelligent. We want to look smart. The gospel doesn't look smart. Accept it and be a man. That is being a man. That we consider only the good opinion of God and we're willing to give a message that doesn't even sound smart in this generation so that others may live. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. That's my proposal for the secret to a one-message church. Jesus said the same thing. He's the pattern. He set the template. What we saw in Jesus do, and what we saw in Paul as it emulated Jesus, do. They were fools for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was all about a cross. And Paul was all about Jesus' cross. I say, let's be about Paul's Jesus' cross. What we've seen, what we've heard, what we've learned from Paul, what we've learned from Jesus, let's do. That we would have the same mind. I'm tired.
Father, whatever interpretive device you need to give to every soul here, where I've stepped on a toe, it wasn't because I wanted to step on a toe. I want the body of Christ to be united. I want us to forsake that which is trivial and that which is higher than us and that which is Greek, that it would not invade the corridors of true Christianity. Lord Jesus, our men must fight for doctrine. Our men must be stout for the truth of Jesus Christ, and we must know. We must know what is true and what is right and what is lovely, what is of good report, that we would speak it with our mouths and live it with our lives. But that something that is true and pure and lovely and of good report is Jesus. Jesus, 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 and more Jesus. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would all be one note wonders. And we would all be about our King. We would all be about our Shepherd. We would all be about Jesus Christ. Please, Lord Jesus, somehow take this mess that seemingly I've given today and make it work. Make it impacting within the souls of those that are here. May we not trip over it. May it not be a stumbling block. But may it be an invigoration for us. And if some of us need to take it and pray pray it through and check it against the word of God like the Bereans, may we do exactly that. Precious King of Kings, this is unto you and for your glory. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.